So open your Bibles to John chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 31 through 36, where Jesus talks about the truth setting us free. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness and your mercy that you would desire to set us free. That you, as Isaac Watts said, would shed your blood for a sinner such as me. Oh Lord, we pray now in this time when we look into your word and we seek to understand what you're trying to say to those people standing in the temple 2,000 years ago, Lord, help us to grasp what you mean. Help us to understand where it is in our lives today that we need this truth. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, transform us from the inside out in such a way that we live, breathe, and act as your people. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would just put the words that need to be spoken into my mouth and that I would say nothing that is not in accordance with what you desire to be said this morning for bringing glory to you and hope in salvation to the lost and encouragement to the children of God. And I ask it, Father, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So here in verse 31, Jesus says to those who have believed in him, you need to abide in my word. So here we are looking at this idea of Jesus saying abiding in my word. And one of the first thing that jumps out to us is that in Jesus right now, in this very second, where Jesus is standing in verse 31, he's not talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the guys that he's always in conflict with. He's talking to those who are brand new believers, people who just said, I've listened to what you said over the last eight days here during the temple, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, and you're not like anybody else. I believe you're the one. And when we realize he's talking to his believers, people who've just put their trust in him in some form or fashion at least, this whole passage takes on a different feel than his typical confrontation with the Pharisees. Because this isn't an argument like he's normally having. He's saying to his people, the ones who believe in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So what Jesus means, I think, is just the literal sense of the words. True disciples follow Jesus and abide in his word. Because that's what he says. And he doesn't just say it here. He says it in other places, even in the Gospel of John. But of course, ultimately, the question really comes down to is what does it mean to abide in Jesus? What does that mean? How do we do that? 
And the challenge, I think, is most of us want to jump straight to the how do I do it? And that's really not the first place we need to go. The first place we need to go is how do we become and be a person who abides in his word? And so the first thing to comprehend is that his words are the teachings of a new covenant, the one in which the Holy Spirit is indwelling within each of us, transforming us so that we are the kind of people who can abide in his word and then actually do it. And because it's a brand new covenant, we have to understand it in the new covenant way he's explaining it from the old covenant the one which was based on doing, right? The old covenant was all about doing. And in even Paul, later in the book of, uh, one of his writings and the author of Hebrews, they talk about the difference between the covenant given by Moses and the difference between Abraham being given the promise based on faith. And part of the new covenant is to live in the truth as well as what Jesus says. So abiding in Jesus means abiding in his word and living in truth. Okay? So to understand abiding in Jesus, we also have to understand what it means from John chapter 15. So turn over to that passage, John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. This is a passage so many of you have read so many times. It's one in which my dear wife holds dear to her own heart. Starting in verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Each branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide 
so that, purpose clause, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Okay, obviously there's a lot here. And when we finally get to chapter 15, I'll be able to unpack it completely. But look at, here are the key things. Okay, in my mind, I, I can see that in my mind. Here are the key things. He's using this analogy of a vine and us as branches and being attached to the central stem of the vine. I don't know if you've ever had the been involved in viticulture, the growing of grapes. Typically, they're grown on a trellis, right? And you have the main stem. That's the main vine that grows along the wire. And then the branches come off of that, and those are the ones that typically are bearing fruit. So he's using this analogy that he is the main vine. And it is his father who is caring for the vine, and we are the branches. And so our purpose in this analogy, our purpose is to bear fruit, right? Because that's the purpose of the branches. And so what is this fruit? What does this fruit look like? Well, obviously, elements from the fruits of the Spirit would be that is true. But what are the things he specifically mentions in this that would be fruit that we're supposed to bear? Loving him and loving one another. He specifically says that in verses 9, 10, and 11. And oh, by the way, how do we get our joy and keep our joy? How do we do that? To me, that's in this world, in this life, in all the stuff that goes on around us. The biggest challenge is keeping my joy. Well, I think getting it is the hardest part. But then once I've got it, it's almost as hard to keep it as it is to get it. So how do we keep our joy? How does Jesus, what does he say to us about keeping our joy and getting it in the first place? Verse 11 These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Okay, what are these things? Love, abiding in his love, love for him and love for one another. Okay, this is the upside downness of the kingdom of God. This is the mathematics that doesn't make sense in the kingdom of God. You have joy by loving others. That's how we get our joy. The problem with answering the question that the way we get our joy is loving others is that immediately raises another question. What does it mean to love somebody? Oh, by the way, the song with that title is not the answer. They got it wrong. Why? Why are the lyrics to that song, what does it mean to love somebody, how do I love somebody? Why is it? I think because it's self-centered. It's not really love. And that's the problem with our modern culture is they define love as what it does for me and, and how it impresses on me. But that's not the way Jesus defines love. Jesus defines love as we see in other places. And what is, what is the best? What is best for this person? Even if it means, what does he say in verse 13? Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends? What? You mean I might, that loving someone is being willing to take on pain and suffering 
because that's what's best for this person. Come on, Jesus. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me, Jesus? Oh, come on. Really? That's what he says. So abiding in him is abiding in the kind of love that is willing to sacrifice self, self good for the good of the other, of another. I tried to come up with a cute example and they all just, well, they all just didn't work. I wasn't smart enough to come up with the cute example that was really great. And maybe that's the point. There's no such thing as cute, Jesus-like love. Maybe I'm wrong. So, when we abide in Christ, we get His joy. And we're able to keep that joy. But we get more than just His joy. Abiding in Christ, we get both Jesus and the Father. We get a twofer, a two for the price of one. In Second John, verse 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. However, whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Second John, verse 9. Right. What? Okay, so let me get this straight. I'm trying to keep track here, Jesus. I abide in you and I abide in your words, which means I'm abiding in your love and then I'm loving and I, I get joy and I also get you and the Father, right? Yes, that's right. Okay. This following Jesus and abiding in him is looking pretty good. We get him, we get joy, we get the Father. Oh, and we get the Holy Spirit too. What's the downside? Really, seriously, is there any downside to this opportunity in this situation? Oh, yes. Because Jesus also tells us immediately after this passage in chapter 15 of the Gospel of John that this is kind of countercultural, kind of counter everything in the world and they're going to hate you for being this way. Why would they hate me for being this way? What did I do wrong? You expose their self-centered love. And when we expose someone's self-centered love, we're messing with their idols. And when you touch somebody's idol, you're going to get a reaction, people. You're going to get a reaction when you touch somebody's idol. Just like touching my cheesecake is going to get you a reaction. And I can promise you, you won't like it. Don't mess my cheesecake. So abiding in Jesus, we get all these things. Abiding in Christ also brings us the transformation. And when I say transformation, I'm talking about our speech and behavior change because we have a new heart. Remember, I will take out the heart of stone and I'll give them a heart of flesh. And the Holy Spirit is the fulfillment and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit and the transforming power of the Spirit is what 
causes us to move from the heart of stone to a heart of flesh, to a heart that can love the way that Jesus loves. And when that kind of change happens in us, our speech and our behavior are going to change. And most people are going to notice that. People who have spent time around us are going to notice, wait, you know, you don't, you're different. You're not like you used to be. And many of those are positive changes, although they might think they're not positive. If, if, if the change they saw was you were their drinking buddy and every Saturday night you got drunk, you don't do that anymore. They're not going to think that's a positive change. And our speech, the way we speak, and this isn't just like, you know, cleaning up our language so that we aren't using the curse words. This, when I say our speech changes, it goes from a self-centered speech to a others-centered speech. Because Jesus also said that out of the heart, out of the overflow of the heart, comes everything. Whether it is murder, adultery, slandering, but also out of the overflow of the heart that's been transformed with the love of Christ and filled with his love comes out of that overflow, the edifying, the speaking the truth in gentle love, not condemning loving. You want to, okay, I'll give you a little pastoral tip here. Having done this for a little while, I'll give you a little little tip, little business tip here. How do you know when you're speaking the truth in love? And whether you're just speaking the truth out of some other motive. Oh, by the way, this is from experience, and so I'm giving you the opportunity to learn from my experience and not make my mistakes. Or is, is the truth you're giving? Yeah, go ahead, Wesley. Oh, I was going to say uh, whether or not it builds up enough. Yes. Are you speaking the truth in a way that is encouraging and edifying for the purpose of walking with Jesus, or are you doing it in a condemning, in condemnation? If you weren't such an idiot, you wouldn't have these problems. Okay, that is true. All right, I can see that is true, but that is not speaking the truth in love. That is not doing Jesus love with somebody. Yes, I did that too. But it was one of my kids, so it was okay. No, it wasn't. That's a joke. Are you speaking the truth in a way that is condemning the person? If you go back through the Gospels, I, I challenge you, I dare you, I literally dare you to go through the Gospels and find a place where Jesus spoke in a condemning way except for the Pharisees and Sadducees and the lawyers. Outside of that group, he never spoke a condemning mindset he spoke truth about confronting sin in their lives but he never had a condemning attitude in his voice to anyone else so we get a new heart paul talks about this in second corinthians yes talking about the the veil of moses if you remember when moses was 
out in the wilderness and they he would go stand before God and he'd come back to the people and he's glowing and they'd start to freak out a little bit because he's a he's like the radioactive Moses when they didn't know what radioactive stuff was. So he would wear a veil over his face. And he's and Paul's referring to that event here in Second Corinthians chapter three, starting in verse fifteen with Yes, to this day whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image as Jesus from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So Paul is telling us that The Spirit of the Lord is also tied to freedom. Jesus is saying that truth is tied to freedom. Therefore, truth and the Spirit of the Lord are tied together. So, okay, new piece of the puzzle here, Paul. Thank you very much. So when the truth is the Spirit of the Lord present also, but this is actually pretty easy to figure out apart from the Spirit pulling away the veil so that we can see the truth, we would never know the truth. And this freedom that Jesus is telling us comes from the truth, comes from knowing the truth. And remember, Jesus is talking to his followers. He's not confronting the Sadducees and the Pharisees. He's talking to us. He's explicitly saying to them and to us, you must come to know the truth. But what truth is he talking about? Jesus' word is truth. And that truth, Jesus' truth, I don't like using that term because it implies that there's other kind of truths, but there's not. Okay, Jesus' truth contains everything that is true. I know we're starting to get a little philosophical here, but hang with me. I'll be back into the practical world in a minute. Everything that is true is in Jesus' truth. Now that seems so simplistic, but you need to comprehend how significant that is for you. Do you understand many of the great scientists pursued and persevered in scientific discovery because they believed the truth about that subject was discoverable Because Jesus knew that truth existed and affirmed that it existed. They understood that they could find truth if they searched for it in that scientific field. In fact, Isaac Newton said that the reason he invested so much time and energy in discovery of the natural world is because he knew that if he did he would find out to a greater degree of who God is through those discoveries. His view of God would increase. His amazement at God would increase. All the things and all the characteristics and attributes of the Father and the Son would increase as a result of his discoveries. He believed that. That's why he pursued with such energy his scientific discoveries. That's no different today. And remember, it's not just the scientific side. It's anything we choose to study 
and investigate. We can investigate it believing that in discovering the truth that is there, covered and then uncovered, that it will enhance our understanding of who God is. Any subject, anything, even philosophy. Please, please, let me do, no, just be, yeah. Okay, and I say, you gotta understand when I say even philosophy, you gotta understand I really don't enjoy studying philosophy. Because it takes too long to get to the main point. I'm too impatient. And even there, truth can be discovered. But specifically, though, in this moment here, the truth is who Jesus is and what he is doing. The truth involves the whole gospel message. That's the truth that Jesus is referring to here. The whole gospel message that we have rebelled against God and disobeyed him. That our rebellion has caused pain and suffering. Look, I screwed up and it hurt my children. I screwed up and it hurt my wife. I screwed up and it hurt my mom and dad. My messing up caused pain and suffering. And it was disobedience against him. And because of what we have done against God and his creation, right? So his creation includes the human beings he created, the ones that I hurt because I screwed up. We cannot make up for it by anything that we do. We need a redeemer because we cannot redeem ourselves. I tried. I spent 20 years trying to redeem myself and failed. Oh, and by the way, there wasn't a lot of joy in that 20-year period when I'm trying to be my own redeemer. Jesus is the only redeemer who can redeem us. There is no other choice, okay? I do. I get exasperated with the cultural gurus who talk about self-help and sevenfold path of enlightenment. Look, look, there is no other way. Buddha ain't going to save you. Buddha ain't even going to show you the way to get saved. Jesus is the only option. The only one who can redeem us. Because he redeemed us by taking on our curse and punishment in his suffering and death on the cross. What does it say in Galatians 3.13? That Christ has redeemed us by being the curse and taking it on for us. That's where this comes from. Galatians 3.13. He's redeemed us by his taking on the suffering and death on the cross. And we receive this redemption in the most simplest way, right? I don't think there's anybody in the room I'm not telling you something you don't already know. But maybe you're going to hear it in a more rich and fuller way. We receive redemption by faith in Christ, his work on the cross for our forgiveness and restoration with God, and openly confessing that Jesus is our Savior. He said, don't hide your light under a bush. That includes saying openly that Jesus is our Savior. I don't think, you know, when I'm saying open, confessing openly, it doesn't mean that every time you speak to a person, hey, I'm saved by Jesus. And you could. Probably not a terrible thing to do. I mean, you could do worse things, but 
it's kind of a little awkward. You walk up to a stranger you've never met before. Hi, my name is Brian. I'm saved in Jesus. I don't know, maybe I should. The church has been a confessing church about Jesus as our Savior since the day of the resurrection. And you read Fox's Book of Martyr, confessing Jesus as our Savior openly that got them all killed. Both then and today. Here's the, un- okay, you want to, the, the really uncomfortable part about this for me is I know that there are places in this world today that brothers and sisters in Christ are being confronted by authorities of some nature and asking, are you a disciple of Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? And they are saying yes, knowing full well that they're going to die 30 seconds later. And there's nothing I can do about it standing here today. Not a thing. What am I supposed to do with that? What am I supposed to do with it? I know it's happening and I can't do nothing to stop it standing right here. Should I? Should I even try to stop it? Is Jesus glorified by our brothers and sisters who are dying this very second because of their open confession of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so if I try to stop it, I'm interfering with Jesus getting glory. But yet, this is where we need a one-handed theologian. On the other hand, we're called to change the world and the culture around us. And in ways I don't quite understand or know what to give you We're supposed to somehow speak out in a way that would change that culture to where our brothers and sisters can openly confess Jesus and not be afraid of losing their life. That was bonus too. That wasn't part of my... So if you you wrestle with that, and if you come up with good answers, I want to hear them. Lastly, the followers here, and this is the... Like, oh my gosh, how can this be possible? How is this possible? Tell me this isn't true. These people who have said they're going to follow Jesus and he's telling them abide in my words, they don't get it. They're like, yes, I want to follow you. And 30 seconds later, like, "Mm, not so much. Are you kidding me? Bless their hearts. Jesus talks about slavery and these people, the only thing they can understand is the literal meaning of slavery as a slavery to someone in their day where slaves were servants in a household of some kind of nature. That's the only kind they can understand. The only kind they can see. You have to remember that this moment that occurs when Jesus says all these words, they have just spent eight days commemorating the time in the wilderness and the exodus from Egyptian slavery, the light of God, in the form of the fire and the cloud over the tabernacle and then leading them out, the miraculous water from the rock in the middle of the desert, the giving of the Torah itself at Mount Sinai. All of this is fresh in their minds. They just spent eight days celebrating it. They have also, a few weeks earlier, celebrated Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The rebellion at Sinai with the golden calves is also wrapped up into all this. So when Jesus makes his statement that anyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, they should instantly get it. 
They should instantly get it from remembering everything they've just been commemorating in the time of the wilderness in the desert from the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus makes it plain that anyone who sins is a slave to sin, which means you can't set yourself free. Take it from experiential knowledge. 20 years of trying to set myself free didn't work. I needed a redeemer. And so do you. One more important part about this is Jesus refers to the Son who reigns in the house forever and if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And prior to that, in verse 33, the people quoted to Jesus from Genesis chapter 7, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. That reference to the offspring of Abraham is more than just saying that we are Abraham's descendants. The offspring there in that moment with Abraham and God is singular. Offspring one, seed one. So this phrase has a loaded term to it. They've really opened up a can of worms by telling Jesus that they are the offspring of Abraham. It is specifically referencing, as I said, Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, where God promises to give the land to Abram and his singular offspring. Now, in that day, many Jewish teachers adopted, and that was the view commonly held, that the singular offspring referred to the whole nation of Israel as a whole. And it's what people in Jesus' day believed about Genesis chapter 12, verse 7 as well. However, Paul changes it. Paul redefines it in the light of the gospel, and Jesus is the unique son and his unique sonship. So from Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to the one and to your offspring, who is Christ. The promised one is Jesus. It wasn't even Isaac. The promised one is Jesus. And that comes into play very importantly in just a minute. So how can Jesus say, okay, now the next question, this immediately, all this immediately raises an important question. How can Jesus set anyone free? Well, we know about the power, you know, we know about the cross and now he did. But where does he get his authority to do such a thing? Jesus has the authority to set us free because in Jewish and Roman culture, the son at adulthood had the authority to set slaves free. So the father could buy a slave and they could do stuff. And the son had the adult son had the authority to set the slave free that the father had bought and paid for. Jesus's sonship, his unique sonship, gives him the authority to set us free from sin and death. And how do I know that Jesus is talking about setting us free from sin? Well, he referenced it specifically in verse 34. So it's implied here in verse 36. However, there is something else more specific. Remember Galatians 3.16 from just a moment ago? Well, Paul uses that reference from 12.7 as an example of freedom from sin. This is the whole passage right before verse 16, starting in verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. 
But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that, purpose clause, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Not only does Jesus have the authority to set a Jewish person free from the slavery of sin, hallelujah, praise God, he has the authority to set the Gentiles free from sin. Okay. You know what's coming next. So what? Thank you very much for this enlightening time of explaining ancient Jewish and Roman culture and all these interbiblical connections. This has been fantastic, but I got to go home and pay bills. So what? So what? First one is accept and acknowledge that Jesus is your only hope for being made right with God and those around you. Remember, the salvation of Jesus isn't just about making right my relationship with God. It's about making right the relationships with my family and the people I interact with. Secondly, rejoice. Rejoice in your freedom from sin and death. Seriously, worship Jesus as your Savior with all your energy and joy that you have in Christ. Sing with gusto. Or as Wesley said, John Wesley, sing lustily. Part of embracing the truth so that we can be set free is to live in truthfulness with those around us. As I said last week, we have to be honest about what we are going through with those in our lives. Look, okay, if you hear nothing else, I want you to hear, like, like please take this with you And never, ever, ever forget it. Isolation leads back to slavery. Isolation leads back to slavery. My confession and testimony last week is evidence, hard evidence, that isolation leads to slavery. As that great theologian Clint Eastwood said in the outlaw Josie Wells, man alone is easy prey. Being honest with those in our lives also includes good times as well as the bad. Look, share your, I love hearing your success stories and your God stories of something great he does. Share your joys and delights as well as your hurts and struggles. I've trying to do better at that myself with all of you. Share the delights and share the struggles. Okay, I don't understand it and I cannot explain it. I just, I, I, I just it makes no sense to me. It's again, it's one of these things that doesn't add up in the ledger in the mathematics of the kingdom. God's way is open confessing with our mouth as part of receiving the truth. Not just a silent acknowledgement, okay, but a genuine speaking out loud with our voice. I believe this is true not just individually, but also corporately as a church body. That is why it's actually 
Singing with your voice is so important. We sing our beliefs here, as I said earlier, and when you are singing, you are confessing what you and we as a church believe and hold as the truth. This isn't just singing. It is confessing and speaking truth out loud. And somehow, when I don't understand it, I cannot explain it, that is more powerful for us individually and for those around us than just silently acknowledging it to ourselves in our seats. This has gone way longer than I wanted it to. And I want, look, we're going to sing, we're going to sing, and we're going to sing confessing the truth of who Jesus is and what we believe. And then we're going to continue to live in the truth by taking the Lord's Supper and all the symbols of truth that it represents. Remember, symbols represent a real thing in the real world. They're not just some ephemeral thing that exists by itself. The symbol represents a real thing. The bread and the cup represent real things in this world. The body of Christ and the new covenant we have with him and the dwelling power of the Spirit. So as we continue to worship in truth, enjoy Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for your gifts and your blessings and your mercy and just hallelujah. Praise you for redeeming us from slavery to sin so that we will become sons and daughters of Abraham living with you in the house forever. In Jesus' name, amen.